Look, mate, I've been telling you for ages, this content is meant for proper adults. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Dark and Stormy Podcast, where we will explore topics ranging from the weird and creepy to the downright terrifying. So if you like horror, true crime, urban legends and other dark themes, I have so much to tell you and I just can't wait. There are many classic horror films that truly stand the test of time due to the innovation and talent of the creators. However, what many don't know is that while on screen the horror is fictional, sometimes these films were connected to sinister events that were all too real. Tonight, I will be telling you four of these horrifying behind-the-scenes stories, stories which show, sometimes, life really does imitate art. Story number one, The Twilight Zone. There have been several instances of people dying on movie sets, However, none of these are as horrifying and tragic as the three deaths that took place on the set of the Twilight Zone movie. The movie was filmed in the early 80s and one scene involves actor Vic Morrow, age 53, playing a character that is trying to save the lives of two Vietnamese children during the war. The children were played by Renee Chen, age 6, and Micah Din Lee, age 7. On July 23, 1982, they were being directed by John Landis during a scene in which the three are running from a pursuing U.S. military helicopter. There were explosions going off in the area also, and it was clearly a very dangerous scene to shoot. Not only that, but director Landis had apparently hired the children illegally, and while their parents were on set... They hadn't been told the details of the dangerous scene they were about to shoot. They had no idea there would be explosions or a helicopter involved. They had all been assured there would be absolutely no danger involved in the shoot. Landis was also breaking child labour laws by shooting the scene in the middle of the night. He had gone out of his way to keep the details of the scene a secret from everyone but those who needed to know. Based on the later testimony of people acting on set, director Landis was acting like a complete lunatic, urging the helicopter pilot, a Vietnam veteran who had never flown on a movie set before, to fly lower and lower, to dangerously unsafe levels. It was estimated that the helicopter had been flying as low as 24 feet, or 7.3 metres, This is a ridiculously low height for a helicopter in the best of circumstances, but with pyrotechnics going off all around, and the fact that it was flying directly above three people, it was just an accident waiting to happen. As they were filming, Vic Morrow was running through a creek, attempting to evade the helicopter with the children, when the unspeakable happened. The pyrotechnics caused the hazardously low-flying helicopter to crash directly on top of the three actors, killing them all instantly. 
Vic and Micah were both hacked up by the helicopter blades, while Renee was crushed beneath the weight of the aircraft. No one on the helicopter was seriously injured. Despite the fact that he had been completely in charge of the set, the director refused to admit he had any hand in the tragedy, and still, over 30 years later, he has never admitted any wrongdoing. He and others involved were taken to court by the families of the three actors, which all ended in out-of-court settlements. Years later, director Landis and three others involved in the tragedy were tried for involuntary manslaughter, and all were acquitted of these charges. The pilot, Dorsey Wingo, said he was distraught over the incident because Vic never looked up. Apparently, he had warned Morrow to be ready to run if the helicopter showed signs of distress. The pilot somehow expected Morrow, an actor, engrossed in a scene and running with two small children in his arms, to be able to evade an out-of-control helicopter. The pilot's distress was caused not by his own involvement in the incident, but that Morrow wasn't paying close attention to the helicopter while simultaneously performing this action scene. At the time, Landis had been working on a film with Steven Spielberg, and the two had a good working relationship. However, Spielberg was so disgusted by Landis's refusal to admit any wrongdoing that he completely cut ties with the director because of it. Oddly enough, Friends of Morrow would later reveal that he'd had a very bad feeling about a similar helicopter scene in a prior film. His last words before going on set to shoot this final tragic scene were, I've got to be crazy to be doing this. Morrow was best known for the 1960s TV show Combat. In a bizarre coincidence, a director named Boris Siegel, who worked on that show with him, died in the exact same way one year prior to Morrow's death. Siegel had been working on a movie called World War III when he died after being hit by a helicopter rotor blade. Siegel was the father of actors Katie Siegel, Liz Siegel, Jean Siegel and Joey Siegel. Morrow's Hollywood legacy also lives on through his children Carrie Ann Morrow and Jennifer Jason Lee. Story number two, the movie extra turned spiritual leader. Most people have seen Rosemary's Baby, and while it may seem tame by today's horror standards, it was certainly shocking when it came out in 1968. And you've undoubtedly heard the horrifying story about the director Roman Polanski's wife, Sharon Tate, being murdered. While the story I'm going to share today may be less violent it is still very disturbing in a very different way. The film is full of all sorts of strange characters, and our story today concerns someone who was only on screen briefly and didn't have any lines of dialogue. This man would have many names during his life, but when he was cast in the movie, he was going by the name Michael Rostand. A lot of what we know about his later life comes to us in a documentary called Holy Hell, created by a former follower. And if that didn't tip you off enough, yes, Michael went on to become a cult leader known as Andreas 
and by some as Reiji, which means the God King. The group, known as Buddhafield, began in Los Angeles, but in recent years ended up on the Hawaiian island of Oahu. While from the outside, the group may appear as just a group of modern-day hippies who are into spiritualism, healthy eating, and a natural way of living, life within the inner circle was much different. The documentary was, after all, created by a former member who spent two decades with the guru and has interviews with other former members. Those that joined the group experienced a loss of personal identity when they were renamed by the guru. The director of the documentary, Will Allen, lived by the name Francesco during his time inside. And, as evidenced by his self-given God King moniker, the guru had changed the focus of the group over the years to direct their worship towards him as their divine leader. Like many cults, members were drawn in by the outward appeal of a life focused on universal love, which involved lots of communing with nature and being a sort of unconventional family with other group members. And unlike many well-known cults, members weren't entirely cut off from society. Many had jobs and knew their neighbours, and they seemed to live normal lives, including going out for drinks and having fun. But there was so much more under the surface. Members lived only with members. They did not have close relationships with non-members. Children were not welcome. And according to the documentary, pregnant women would either have to leave or have an abortion. Like many cults, the guru used his power over his followers to manipulate them into sexual relationships, These relationships were kept secret so that the individuals were made to feel as though they had a special personal connection with the guru and that submitting to him sexually was part of the path to true enlightenment. The filmmaker was one of these individuals and recounts feelings of deep shame tied to that relationship. In fact, the guru had many special followers whom he sexually abused for many years and since it wasn't spoken of, Each of them thought they were alone, both in their specialness and in their shame. It wasn't until 2006 when a former follower revealed the years of abuse they had suffered at the hands of the guru that the remaining members began to finally discuss their abuse openly. After that particular incident, which caused the group to disband almost completely, the guru made his final relocation to Hawaii. Prior to this, the group had resided in Austin, Texas, and before that, Sedona, Arizona. As of 2016, when the documentary was released, the guru was still living in Hawaii and still seemed to have some followers. However, it's hard to say if he's still manipulating and abusing members, since everyone that currently follows him completely denies that anything of a sordid nature ever occurred. And to add an extra layer of sleaze, while Michael, a.k.a. Andreas, a.k.a. Rayi, originally born Jamie, is now in the more mature stage of his life, it's apparently common knowledge in his neighbourhood that he likes to stroll around wearing nothing but a speedo. 
When the documentary was released, the filmmaker and other ex-members journeyed to Hawaii to have a screening at the Oahu Rainbow Film Festival. To do others a favour, they promoted the film by putting flyers in every mailbox within a few miles of where the guru was living. Ultimately, they hoped that even though they could not change what had been done to them in the past, they could at least try to save others from a similar fate. Story number three, when fact is far worse than fiction. Most people would probably agree that the classic horror film The Exorcist is one of the most terrifying films ever made. Shockingly, the film manages to transcend this horrifying fictional universe because of one simple location included in the film. There is a hospital scene in the film shot at NYU Medical Center. Actual staff members appeared as their characters in the film, one of which was an X-ray tech named Paul Bateson. Bateson is briefly in the movie during a scene where Regan is being examined. Not surprisingly, this didn't turn out to be Bateson's big break, but he would end up being front-page news just a few years later. In the late 70s in New York, several gay men went missing and were later found brutally murdered. During this time, New York City was a bit of a nightmarish clusterfuck, and those murdered gay men weren't exactly the highest priority to the NYPD. However, in 1977, a well-known film critic named Addison Verrill was found viciously murdered in his own apartment. A suspect was quickly located, Paul Bateson, who easily confessed to having met Verrill at a local gay bar and murdering him later that night. He went to prison for a 20-to-life stint, where he told fellow prisoners about how he had been responsible for a half-dozen other murders of gay men he had met at clubs. Based on the details he provided, law enforcement felt pretty convinced He was the guilty party. However, they declined to prosecute him for the crimes. When Exorcist director William Friedkin saw that Bateson had been arrested, he visited him in prison. A few years later, he decided to make a film called Cruising, starring Al Pacino, which is about an undercover detective trying to track down a serial killer whose victims are men in the New York gay scene. The movie was poorly received by critics, and many local LGBT folk were incredibly unhappy with how they were portrayed in the film. Since Bateson was never charged for the other murders, he ended up getting released from prison in 2004. He is still alive. Story number four, The Serial Killer and the Stand-In. The 1960 movie Psycho has arguably the most famous horror movie murder scene of all time. Even if you haven't seen the movie, you most certainly have seen that iconic movie moment. When Jamie Lee Curtis's mother, Jennifer Lee, was stabbed to death in the shower, film history was made. Alfred Hitchcock, already well known for being an obsessive perfectionist when making his movies, spent a week filming that scene 
and during that time, Janet Lee had both a body double and a stand-in. Her stand-in was a woman named Myra Davis, who would go on to make a living acting in commercials. Unfortunately for Myra, in her later years, she would cross paths with a vicious murderer. In 1988, at the age of 71, Myra hired a 22-year-old handyman named Kenneth Dean Hunt. In June of that year, she was found strangled to death in her apartment. Despite the fact that Kenneth was also her neighbour and had a history of juvenile sex offences, he wasn't investigated for the crime and for 10 years the case remained cold. Over those 10 years... Hunt added more sex offences and manslaughter to his criminal record, but by 1998, he was still living completely free. It was then that he was finally ready to kill again. His second victim was 60-year-old Jean Orloff, who knew Hunt and his family members well and had decided to use him as a handyman on the recommendation of his mother-in-law. In March of 1998, Jean's neighbour Barbara went to her apartment and found it unlocked. Inside, she found Jean's dead body, naked on the bed. The scene showed signs of a struggle, and part of the bedspread had been burned. Police came to the scene, and both the police sergeant and the coroner initially decided she had died of a heart attack. The family was upset but accepted the opinion of the police. Prior to the cremation, they needed a death certificate, and at that point, another investigator took a look at Orloff's body. Immediately, he knew her death was not caused by a heart attack, but that she'd been strangled. Hunt's own brother-in-law called in a tip on him as he suspected him of killing both women the police were able to get a DNA sample and conclusively proved that he was indeed the killer. And finally, 10 years after her mother's murder, Myra's daughter Sherry got a call from the LAPD saying that her case was solved. Hunt went on trial in 2001, and after two juries deadlocked during the penalty phase, he was finally given life in prison without the possibility of parole. Thank you so much for listening to this first episode. I look forward to sharing many more creepy stories with you in the future. This has been a Muse to Jour production. Thank you for listening, and please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you'd like to find us on the socials, all of our links can be found in the show notes. Listener feedback is much appreciated, and we look forward to hearing from you. Until next time, keep that nightlight on because you never know what horrors are awaiting you in the dark.